Welcome everybody to another episode of B Brown Bag. Today I'm very happy to host Cody the Artland and Jad Alzine with Virialize Automation Use Cases Part 2, where we go into a deep dive of custom forms. Some quick notes that we always get in the beginning of the episode. If you want to get in on the conversation, we have several Twitter handles. We're distributed, we're all over the world. We speak at least three languages, uh, but we use one main hashtag, hashtag BrownBag. We'll be looking at that through the show, or you can ask in the GoToMeeting interface. Again, um, these are my guests. I'll let them introduce themselves, and you're being hosted by Tom Green and Ariel Sanchez. Now I am going to change presenter to Jad and let him take over. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Ariel. Welcome. Um, so this is week or episode two of two for the uh, VRA 7.4 custom forms um, overview. So last week we did a um, more of an introductory. Um, looks like we had some awesome feedback on Twitter and, and on the uh, on Twitter mainly. Um, so what we're going to do today. Uh, so if this is the first one you're going to watch, I would say stop. Go back to episode one as a, as a, either a recap or a prerequisite, and then come back here because we're not going to do a reintroduction of, of some of the basics. So I don't want you to be lost. Um, but anyway, just a just a quick recap, and then um, we've come up with some use cases since there weren't um, a whole lot offered um, from from you guys in uh, in the community. Uh, so Cody and I spoke, and we came up with a couple of of, of useful and helpful use cases. Um, but ultimately, uh, where are we coming at? Just so here's the recap, basically, for you. Um, instead of the boring old forms uh, in VRA, and I've probably expired here. Uh, instead of the boring old forms, uh, VRA 7.4 introduced this concept of the custom forms designer, um, which allows us to uh, change uh, and manipulate the interface of what happened here? Did I lose my VPN session? Let me uh, connect to the desktop here. Hold on one second. That's why Cody rocks the home lab. <laughs> right you know, there. I, I was I was gonna go I was gonna go home lab, but uh, um, I'm in the middle of a hardware upgrade, as as I've mentioned. So, All so right. Talking about the the role transition while you fix your thing, it's so tempting to. You to use the, the TM resources because there's so much more nice stuff in there, but I get scared of this exact thing happening, not having yeah. access all of a sudden. Yeah, it's it's weird. We have um, very weird DNS issues over VPN because the lab is not always advertised. Um, but but anyway, inside the lab it works fine. So I just IP into my jump box. But anyway, um, so back to what we were saying. Um, a lot of you are familiar with VRA, uh, so we. This won't be a fundamentals uh, review. This is just um, for those of you who are familiar. Um, so we, I've got this uh, automating IT app, which I modified last week for a custom form. Um, but I want to show you, just for contrast, um, the difference between the old form. Now, for those of you who are intimately familiar with VRA, you know that this is just an iframe, it's being delivered through a .NET interface um, and being pulled from the Windows IaaS boxes. Uh, so in a VRA deployment, you've got your, your virtual appliance, your, your core um, cafe appliances, or you just forget cafe, your core appliances, and then you've got your Windows nodes, which are, um, the, we'll call them the legacy components. These are the dot, this is the .NET code um, that has been updated to work um, as a a consolidated solution, um, but you can still very much tell where .NET start uh, or where where the new modern stuff ends and .NET starts, right? So this is one of the biggest complaints was this these types of interfaces and and the reason why um, folks go off and build forms in XAS and and some other means, which again we reviewed last week. Um, is to get past some of the limitations and the user experience, jeez, um, user experience uh, uh, limits to how I could interface with this request. All right, so again, this is ugly. Um, we introduced in VRA 7.4, which was released a couple weeks ago, a few weeks ago, a new thing called the Custom Form Designer. 
Now the custom form designer is also um, all built in Clarity. And as you can see here, um, besides my Peter Griffin dancing GIF, um, we've got a whole new modern looking UI. This is just the basics of it. And what I walked through yesterday is taking a, a very basic boring request using the custom forms designer to actually um, make it a whole lot more um, interactive. So for example, I can select a lifecycle stage here and based on that stage, I've auto configured the, um, the tiers and the, the uh, individual attributes of each of these settings. I've also added a dragged and dropped um, as I walked through last week, the ability to incorporate XAS and other um, other components right onto that main canvas as well. And with that main, uh, or with that XAS component in my design canvas, I can then switch to custom form designer and then make XAS basically, or an XAS um, service, um, basically a part of this master form. So creating this, you can see I've added a, a little more automation here. And the use case I walked through was, um, for the web tier, I'm also, for some reason, creating an Active Directory account, right? I'm using an XAS built-in uh, workflow um, and created an XAS out of that and then dragged and dropped that onto the canvas. Okay, so for, for that recap, um, go back, I mean, for that content, go back to last week. I'm going to switch back over to my design tab here and, and show you um, a little bit of, of where we were. And so that same um, automating IT app, uh, which is published in the canvas, I can come into the custom form and edit that directly. So again, um, as a, after I create the form, I could activate, deactivate, uh, I could modify the form directly. I don't necessarily have to go into the blueprint, uh, but I can also pop into here from the blueprint. So one of the things that um, we wanted to go over, um, and these are questions that are, that are pretty common actually. It's one of them is this thing called external validations. And with an external validation, we could actually send um, uh, any sort of any sort of validation uh, that we what we like, and, and kick off a workflow, and make sure that um, based on all the inputs um, that that you've provided, the desired end state is real, right? So uh, you know, it's really hard to to pin this down to a single use case. There's, there's a lot of different use cases we could use here. Um, but the external validation will go and validate data. And then it'll actually return and give you a visual feedback of what passed um, or, or what didn't pass validation. And it'll actually highlight. And we can do um, highlighted fields. And we can say, you know, based on the external validation, um, there's uh, all kinds of things wrong. And I'll, and I'll highlight them and, and make you go back and um, you know, change it. So again, what we are doing here isn't a, a regex. The regex Cody's going to cover as well. What we're doing in external validations is, is saying that the result of the form that you're filling is accurate. I'm going to go and, and make sure that all the inputs that I need from a backend perspective, um, where, where the data is being pulled or any sort of um, content that is required for the form that I didn't walk you through or that is mistakenly put in, I'm going to validate that all of that is good and then respond to you and say, hey, actually, if you are going to request um, two gigs of RAM, you also have to request uh, an 80 gig uh, VMDK, whatever it is. So we can create those relationships and create default values, as I showed last week, but I'm not necessarily validating um, or or making sure that you are entering the right data um, at a holistic level. Maybe that made sense. Um, I kind of felt like I started rambling a little bit. So what we did last week, and, and I'm just going to show you an example. What we did last week is we said, hey, we're going to create a dropdown, a dumb dropdown. And this dropdown is going to manipulate the values of uh, my web tier. And we're going to manipulate through um, the values tab, uh, we're going to create a conditional value and say that if that dropdown equals um, dev, then set the value of CPUs to two. If that dropdown equals prod, set the value to four. Um, so we can we can certainly do that, and and what that's going to do is create a default value that is totally separate from an external validation. Now the other thing we're going to do 
now, for example, let's just say I have, uh, I've, I'm exposing an IP field. And in that IP field, I'm giving you, the developer or the app architect, the ability at request time to just plug in an IP address. Now, with custom forms, there's a ton of different ways we can do that. We could actually query an external source and, and bring a whole bunch of valid IPs in that is dynamically updated based on what's being used, right? So I'm gonna create some sort of CMDB or some sort of lookup to do that, one example. Um, I could also just kind of not have that external source, but do a regex to require you to um, type a very specific type of, uh, of IP. So the first three octets must be whatever, and then the, the last octet um, has to be between X and Y, and I can build a regex for that. Uh, and, and those are, uh, I think, Cody's gonna walk through all of those. Um, so the other piece uh, that I think I heard from last week is um, uh, walkthroughs. So here I've got my blueprint elements, and Cody's gonna actually go through some of the more um, conversed pieces. Oh yeah, CSS. Um, the other one that uh, that Cody had a demo fail, unfortunately, last week because um, he couldn't type. Uh, and he then had a great it. victory afterward. And then <laughs> a great victory I mean, afterward. I mean, within 10 minutes, he was posting updates to Twitter, <laughs> so I could I can totally appreciate that. But we're going to walk through a couple of uh, CSS use cases here. Now, the form I showed you um, was a very basic form. That basically, I activated the form and I did some some basic setups. But what we can do um, with CSS um, is, is totally manipulate the form, make it look and feel exactly the way we want it, um, down to the font and the alignment and photos and colors and, and unicorns and all that good stuff, right? So rather than rambling on, a lot of the basics were covered last week. Definitely go take a look at that. Um, I'm gonna hand it off to Cody, and then I am just going to uh, verbally support him moving forward and let him flex his new uh, TM muscles as, um, as he's joined the, um, the awesome automation TM team. And um, Jody, uh, Jody, Cody, I'm not gonna judge, but um, it's all yours. I will be taking notes and watching. Is, is there a, a room there for a clap? Like, yay, congratulations. <laughs> yeah. I need someone to do like a, like a like an early 2000s era slow clap. That's really what I need. Like just somebody in the distance, started and get it rolling. Hey, so actually before before we hand it off to Cody, um, do you does anybody have any questions um, on the recap? And let me see if, where can I is that in chat or questions, Ariel? Do you know? Should be in questions. All right. So if you have any questions, I know I just kind of flew through the recap, but um, I don't want to spend a whole other session covering that if it's already all out there and recorded. Looking good. All right, so I'll, I'll continue to watch this. Um, Cody, it is all you. All right. Then kick me over the ball, Ariel, if you don't mind. Mm-hmm. Do you see anything? There you go. Yep, should be coming up right now. Mm -hmm. Awesome. So the way I'm going to approach this is I'm going to take just a basic blueprint, and I'll bring that up right now for us to work with. We need just my standard CentOS build. It's a very basic deployment right now. We're going to change it around a little bit, so it's going to get a little ugly in the screen, a little, little busy. Um, and then we're going to use custom forms to clean that up, and we're going to kind of play with some of these features as we step through implementing custom forms. So I've added a couple of a couple of different things. Uh, for example, we have this deployment name. And for those of you that don't know, um, these are all custom properties that are part of just the standard kit of Vero's automation. You can go and look up a custom properties document that lists all of those out. This specific property, we pop into design and take a look and you can see the actual raw property itself. Oops, sorry, bouncing around in places. This property actually controls the whole entire deployment. So those of you who've worked with VRA before, sometimes you'll deploy an, a, or a software stack and it'll get this weirdly randomized name associated with it. So it usually is something like, 
most might have names, so that's not a good demo, but normally there would be something like the blueprint name and then kind of a, a random string of characters afterwards. When you've set that deployment name, you're able to customize the actual name of the deployment. So that answers that, but I've added that as an actual uh, form item so that a person could specify the name of their deployment. So if I was gonna go V brown bag, demo, right? We have our actual OS component here. We have a machine name. So this is actually the host name custom property. So this is if we wanted to allow someone to set their own host name on deployment. Uh, typically I use kind of an automate, automated uh, custom host name generator that's attached to this, but for the purposes of this demo, we're gonna kind of allow the free form setting of the host name. And then the size box that is essentially just an empty drop down, but we, we see it's marked as required. Right, so we need to fill that in. Then we have just our standard fields, you know, max, maximum of five instances, maximum of four CPUs, either two gigs or four gigs of memory. But there are a lot of things that we're not happy about with this form right now, right? First off, the one that always gets me, it's the one I gripe about the most is memory and megabytes, right? Like we're, we're so far beyond people caring about how many megabytes their, <laughs> their servers are. Um, I just, I have nightmares of, project managers emailing me asking for 2,500 megabytes of, of RAM in their server and having to explain that doesn't work or shouldn't work, but it will work and slippery slopes. So we also have all these other tabs, right, that are typically exposed to users. It doesn't give the best user experience because they might come back and say, oh, what are all these, what are these properties? We have a bunch of the soft labs properties in here. What, what are those doing, right? And, and those aren't things you always want to expose to your end user community. Fortunately, we have a tool to fix that. <laughs> so we're gonna play with custom forms. When we go in, we have our item here, and we covered a lot of this last week, so I'm gonna breeze through actually enabling the custom form because we already know how that, how that works from the previous review. We start off with this blank canvas. We could do the generate form as Jad did last week, and it would populate this with, with everything, but we're not gonna go down that path. We're hey, gonna quickly drag hey, out. Cody, Cody, back up to actions real quick. Just want to re um, mention one thing. This was asked um, earlier. Um, so here we have import form, export form, and then export form as YAML. So when we go export form, the default is JSON. When we go export form as YAML, it's YAML. When we go to import form, it's either JSON or YAML as the source. Okay, and that's independent of the blueprint YAML. Just to be very clear, this is a very, it's specifically the custom form YAML or custom form JSON that can then be applied to any other blueprint and then modified as needed. So just an FYI there. Good stuff. So we know the deployment name is something we want. We know that CPU, know the memory, we don't need all these custom property fields. We know host name is something we want, and we have that as a required field, so we know that has to be filled in, and we have size in here. Now, if we just save this, activate the form and finish, we end up back with just a very basic form deployment. It definitely looks a little bit better, right? It's not as cluttered, but it's still very plain. Uh, first thing we're going to start to look at is the CSS controls and how to actually use CSS to kind of spruce this up a little bit. So I wish I had brought up the picture from last week, but we had tried to do a brief CSS demo and I couldn't get the background or I couldn't get one of the, the fields to display right. And it was just because I wasn't actually tagging the, the value correctly. So when we go into the form and we're working with the actual uh, designer tab, pop back into our custom form. You'll see each one of these fields has an identifier with it. So field ID, deployment name. That's a very simple one, field ID, sent off CPU. All of these scroll through to actual field names that we can actually work with from a CSS perspective. pull over my CSS document that I was working with. This is obviously tuned for a very specific use case. This was something that I was just toying around with. Uh, there's a few things we discovered along the way playing last week. We discovered that we can actually work with the body of the CSS. So if we go in and I clear all this out, so I'll just 
create a new tab, and I'll save that stuff off to the side for now. Just for grins, we'll go in and we'll turn this up to that, and we'll go import form. Oh, oops, sorry, import CSS. Save and finish. It's not that much bigger. I should actually increase it considerably just for the sake of demo. So, it's that. There we go. See, so it, one obvious limitation is we're still working within a series of iframes, and actually we're working it within a set of divs that have some very specific uh, constructs around them. So as we get too big on the font, things don't play as well. So you'd have to actually go through and start to resize out these divs as part of your CSS if you wanted to actually consume these, these font sizes as as demonstrated. So What's good about what, the place to start with this is to set a good baseline font size. So I started with 16. Let's go back and bring back some of our other, where was it all? There we go. Bring back all of these. You see, I, I go through and I change a few things. So these are all headers, essentially, for in such every uh, individual field. These were a bunch of additional fields I had before. And I also set the font weight to bold. So if we go and we start pulling out some of these actual field values again from the design, Now it's an interesting call out because since we're using the default uh, about fields that come out uh, as normal, these are all you know built-in properties that are part of the blueprint. The field ID is kind of statically set as those components, but if we were to drag out just a regular text field, you'd see we get this random, this randomized uh, kind of identifier. So it's an interesting call out that if you're using the default fields, you actually get to stick with a, a pretty understandable field ID. And those are essentially just tags for CSS to work with. So you can go out and customize those individual items. We're not going to go through all of these. I'm just going to grab a couple. We'll make just a couple of adjustments. We'll do it to the memory as hey, well. Cody, have I um, mentioned I hate CSS? Yeah, uh, Jad and I had a long talk about the joys of, of CSS after my demo fail last week. Anybody who works with CSS on a daily basis deserve, deserves a hug from anybody they want because, man, man. <laughs> I compared the custom forms to front page. Um, which I always get a nice giggle out of, but you know, we could learn a little bit from front page. Just bring those controls directly into the form. It's actually a, a very good point. Okay. Yet another demo failed because for some reason the uh, actual fields didn't, didn't adjust out like they were supposed to. Nobody will notice if you just keep talking and, and pay no attention to the to the thing you're seeing. Right. Screen. I have a commitment <laughs> to the truth. I just want to put that out there. No faking for me. No, but but seriously, like Kyle Kyle uh, Ruddy once had a, a API in Power CLI, and we spent five minutes troubleshooting, and we actually learned a lot 
from the troubleshooting exercise. So please troubleshoot. It wouldn't be a brown bag if a demo the demo didn't fail. Yeah. <laughs> the way yeah, right. The way it's supposed to work is describing the field ID and I guarantee that if you know we drug out you know, we could make this work in a cheesy kind of way. Right. So if I pulled out a text field, for example, and I did a binding. So getting into advanced concepts. You know, if we wanted to, for some reason, mimic this field, we wanted to have this one actually be hidden, right? Because we can't get the CSS to work right for grins. We could take the value and actually have it bind to that actual CPU field if we wanted to. Or could we? So it looks like we can't bind to that actually, excuse me, yeah, <laughs> as I choke. Oh, sorry about that. Looks like we can't actually bind to the base field. Cody, you don't have to get all emotional about it. It's just, don't it's worry, just man. a form. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't um, know so, what happened so, there. So breathe, breathe first. <laughs> So you could you want to so for for those fields you want to it's probably easier to set values based on an if then statement so based on the content of another field automatically set the valued value of a given field because CPU for example has a given step um, and the step field is is an integer that says you know based on the blueprint you've got one through eight valid VCP or CPUs, so that's probably just not a good example. That's probably not. That's, yeah. a, that's a fair a fair point. And last week when we went through this, we actually did um, we actually had a drop down for the size that automatically set those. So those weren't actually like user settable fields. They were actually configured as they would populate based on small, medium, large. We have we have a Go comment ahead. we have a comment from the peanut gallery. See? CSS Shoot. makes everybody cry. It's it true. See? So, but, but this actually, you know what, this actually brings up a very interesting advanced concept. And this is not something that obviously I would expect that customers should have to do, right? This is going a little bit deep. But when I was trying to solve this myself um, and trying to figure out what I was doing wrong from a CSS perspective, if I go in and just clean up my error real quick. You can actually attack this in a very different way. So we have memory, which we know is a real a real field, right? We can inspect this from a CSS perspective, and you can start to actually dig in and see the individual components uh, from a from a CSS perspective. So, like you can see actual hierarchy. Up here is the body tag, which encompasses the whole thing. There's HTML tag that's just another subset of the body tag. But you can actually pick through this over time, and just for the sake of time, we're not going to go through and actually dig into what, what that actual field is called this time. But you could actually go through and determine what the right, the right field is to work with. And that's how I discovered the body tag being an option. We also have like headers as different options that we can play with as, a, as something to, to clean up or to make changes to. So. Those options are there. It's so like the label tag right there would actually work. So we call it label, and it would actually adjust just the label field for all of them as kind of a baseline default. So again, we can also start to play with pictures in here. I didn't save a sent off picture like I meant to. So oops. But we, as many of you saw from my my joking with Jad earlier last week, we were able to take his picture of him dressed as a unicorn and throw a kind of circle around it and actually have it display out um, in a little bit of a nicer way. I'm sure I can dig up that picture, Jad, if you, if you want me to. No, nope, no, we're good. We can, we can move on. Okay, we can move on. Okay, cool. Cool. Fair enough. I'm taking notes. Okay, we can get pretty, we can I, get I, pretty I deep. I in. totally saw what he did there. Yeah, I got it. <laughs> 
we can get pretty deep into into CSS and actually all of the CSS controls are available, right? Obviously, if you try to call a font that doesn't exist, it's not going to work. But typically, anything that you can um, work, any typical CSS that you can work with is actually going to function on the console. And you actually have a pretty large canvas to, to play with. I was able to move, um, do even like some static values, I was to move, able to move content kind of end to end across the screen. So the whole space this whole entire iframe is still effectively divved up into you know five different divs that you could actually play with and move content around to. So let's take a look at external validation now. Jad touched a little bit on that uh, as far as using a actual form control to go out and validate if the field is correct or set up right. Uh, one of the fields that we set up inside of our blueprint was host name, right? And one of the big concerns about using host name in an actual field is, well, what if somebody takes that host name and requests it, but that, that host name's already been created. How do you kind of protect against that, that type of a, an event? You can do that pretty easily using an external validation. Those external validations, as Jad mentioned, are uh, essentially VRO workflows, they're actions within VRO. I have one that I created. So we do validate AD comp. And what this does is it goes out, takes an input of the host name. It's gonna do an Active Directory search for every computer in AD, using that host name as a second search field. Now I did run into an interesting little bug here. Obviously I'm running 7.4, so I have everything kind of up to date, but I did not have an actual default Active Directory set originally. I had Active Directory bound in here, but it was not flagged as default. Um, and because of that, I wasn't able to actually run the action. The action, if you go in and look at it from a VRO perspective, we do a search here for Active Directory. We go into the scripting class, you'll see that search actually takes typically three fields, a string, a string, and an AD host object. You'll see I don't have two here anymore because I was able to set a default, so it knew that there was one that existed, but originally the only way I could get this to work was by having AD actually bound. The problem with that in this case was that actions can't have attributes bound to them. They have to have a parent workflow or something else that passes that attribute in, and because I didn't have a way to do that inside of the action, I had to figure out why it wasn't working. Uh, in 7.4, this was a change versus the 7.3 version, in 7.4, there's actually a workflow that I will show everyone just to help save any concern or confusion. There's a configure Active Directory plugin options. And within that, I was able to set a default Active Directory server. Once I had that in place, I was able to write the rest of the workflow. So just a simple search. And what we do is we look for uh, the result length. If the host name is found, it'll return a length of one. Or if there's multiple, say you use a wildcard in there, it'll return more than one. So this is saying if the results are greater than zero, return yo vplaya, this host name already, already exists, what you're trying to do. As if to say, you should not request <laughs> a host name that already exists. You said vplaya, that's awesome. Yeah, I, I did, I did, I went there. Now, anybody who's worked in VRO a lot, there's different ways you can kind of test your workflows out. It's very challenging to just test out an action, right? So how I kind of R&D'd this out is I built an actual workflow that did a very similar version of it. I wasn't able to do returns, so I can do system logs, so on and so forth. And I use just my SQL host in my environment instead of a variable, right? So if I run this now, we check the logs, we know that it actually works. Uh, pro tip from a troubleshooting perspective, just for people who want to get deep, we go, we can SSH to our actual appliance. Yeah, I use Bash on Windows. Come at me if you don't like it. Bash on Windows is a super helpful thing whenever you're trying right. to uh, use different types of programs. While you're typing this, we did have a question come in. Sure, fire away. Um, are there any plans of getting rid of JavaScript and VCO? No. Yes, no. Um, yes, VCO. Yes, no. 
how you look at it. <laughs> so, oh, so here's not Java. Sorry, that's my bad. So it, it's going to really depend on on the why. Um, now, VC VRO VCO is really all dependent on that. Um, so so to to get rid of JavaScript at this point is a complete rewrite of the application or at least every single workflow. Um, so there's there's a couple of things happening. Um, and this would probably be, let's just say that this is, here's what we're thinking, okay? And we'll just keep it at that. So here's what we're thinking. Um, to make the development, consumption, iteration, and usage of VRO workflows and the JavaScript therein um, way more developer friendly so that I could actually build code in, um, you know, build code in my favorite repo or IDE and actually push it to VRO and have VRO get what it needs out of that to then consume all of its native language and build your workflow. So, so the, the building and maintaining and managing of VRO workflows is going to, it's going to be less from a user perspective, UX perspective, less dependent on all the JavaScript, but underneath the covers, a lot of JavaScript. I mean, it's just that's just what the the, the platform is built on. Um, now, on top of that, um, we are going to be uh, com you know moving the whole authoring UI to Clarity um, this year. So the whole you know, all the managing of not just the plugins and and, ex and the execution and managing and monitoring from that perspective, but and logging and troubleshooting and auditing, um, but also all the building of uh, of workflows and, and editing and modifying uh, actions, workflows, et cetera, is all going to be done through HTML5 Clarity-enabled UI this year. So lots of enhancements, but not not exactly getting rid of JavaScript. It's my very short... Here's an example of what Jad, Jad was saying around having some sort of like external function engine do work and have VRO essentially consume that. This is done with, uh, I did a free brown bag a few months back about OpenFAS, which is a function as a service platform. It's just a concept, right? This isn't a product that I'm, that I'm saying is going to happen. This is an idea just to get people thinking around ways that this translates. This workflow or this actual action essentially is calling um, OpenFAS and actually calling an API endpoint that's been created that is essentially going out and doing a REST call back to vCenter and dumping out a list of all of all VMs, right? So this action, when properly wired and if the host still existed, which it doesn't, um, it would actually return a list of all VMs. And that list was written in Python instead. So this REST point, and this looks like a lot of code. I mean, it's 45 lines. But much of this would be reused. And if I created 10 of these actions, only a few of these variables within here would change. Right? It would still be the majority of the actual code work is taking place on, on a Python server elsewhere in my environment. Brave new world in the future. So what I was going to show, now that we're back on, on track, um, you can actually go into var log VCO app server and tail the scripting log. We see that just kind of hanging out right now. We switch back into our environment here. We'll finish up wiring the workflow and then we'll watch that log go through and you'll be able to see that actually run. So we'll do an orchestrator validation. Label it as host name, validate. We know our action is named. Validate AD comp. It's going to take an input from the host name field. Right, so these are fields that exist on the form already. And the field that we want to highlight when something goes wrong is actually that same hostname field. All right, so we'll save this. Flip back over. Clean this up a little bit just so it looks properly sized. Save and finish.
Now we have that host name field there. We get tricky and go left. Let me bring this over. Where's the right? This isn't wired up, but it still requires the field. So if I submit this, it's going to run that action and check to see if that host name already exists. So we'll go submit. You didn't really see it, but in a very, very, very quick way, it did a validation check real fast. This log hasn't scrolled yet for some reason. See that is actually in progress. Now, if we did something like my actual SQL host, there you go, a bunch of stuff just happened. Let me submit again. We can see a whole bunch more scripting happened, and it threw an error. Aha, a demo worked. <laughs> Good job. Even a broken clock is right twice a day. Right, right. So you can see where this gets really, you know, in the former, it gets really interesting because in the former world of, of VRA, a lot of times you would have to submit this workflow. You'd have to either write a very complex XAS workflow and do the validation elsewhere, and it would be a very kind of laggy process. Anyone who's done a lot of XAS workflows yeah. has seen when you tab through those fields, how it runs the runs the check and has to validate all the fields again. It turns into a very not happy performance thing. You would say something, Jed? Yeah, I was going to say that this is all done in the presentation layer, which is one, right? We're not we're not waiting for something to fail because a workflow returned that hey, exactly. a hostname exists, right? It's doing it in real time. It's not. Um, it's not, well, as real time as possible. Um, but one of the, the most important use cases um, that we see all the time, um, which is why it's good to spend this much time on this, um, is IP addressing. Um, so we have the need to plug in an IP address and I can check, does that IP address exist? And um, it just gives folks a lot of flexibility in, in real time feedback and the user experience. And this is how it's very different than a regex. So to address somebody who asked me that uh, in, in, a, in a demo I did a couple of weeks ago, is that uh, the regex is, are you typing in the right stuff, right? Totally, and I was uh, just about to show that, yep. Yeah, and it, it's not, yes, this is a valid entry. Um, it, it's This is a valid format of that entry, but I, I don't know the ecosystem around it, and um, I don't know about any conflicts. I don't know about any duplicates or anything like that. Um, the regex says, yes, this is an email address, or yes, this is a number one through nine. Um, so th just be very clear the difference between a validation and a regex. Um, the regex is, is what, and you can, by the way, you can have a regex for the field entry and then a validation to make sure it's valid data. Or a, exactly, know, and I think that that's, that's such a good call out because I think that there's a, a really good mix there, right? Because you want to make sure that the data is coming in in a clean state, right? That it's it's formatted correctly, but you also need to validate if it's going to be used correctly. And those are two very different things. You could write a longer workflow to validate them both at the same time, I suppose. But it's very nice to be able to get immediate feedback here because I can't tell you how many times from a customer perspective when I would build these complex workflows for, for my environment. Mind you, we provisioned everything as XAS. Um, so XAS being anything as a service workflows. Um, and it would be so frustrating when someone would spend, you know, five, 10 minutes getting through a form that was constantly checking fields against databases and rest endpoints and different config management servers. And they would hit submit and immediately it would drop a fail on them and they'd go in and look and it'd say, you know, you were one, one digit off on your IP address or that's a bad example because we did automate, automated IP addressing, but there was other fields that they could mess up on and it would return an immediate fail for them and they would be, really frustrated to have to go in and fill that form out again, spend a bunch of time. So it's good to Jad's point on the presentation layer to have an immediate feedback before anything's submitted and give you a chance to fix it before submitting. Hypothetically, in a, in a really mature environment, you would have some level of validation on many of these fields, right? Some of them you don't need 
seen it, right? On, on memory, for example, there's automatic. If I go, I'm over the limit, right? I, my maximum's four, 4096 anyway. It's four gigs of memory. So that already has it built in. But wiring that up to host name like we did, you know, sizing, if, we, if you it ha didn't have a drop down there, that would be important. You see the regex, while Jad was talking about it, I threw a regex in here. I have letters mixed in with IP addresses. It's telling me in the format. Now, this is also a, it's, it's a blessing and a curse, right? Because, yes, we can do validation to make sure that IP addresses are formatted right. Here's where things get crazy. This is not a valid IP address, <laughs> but it's very sensitive to how you write the regex. Anyone who's worked with regex knows you have to be very specific and build your filters correctly. Um, this is a very simple one that I just threw together on the fly to show in the demo. It would serve the purpose of ensuring that you had all numbers and four octets, but if somebody came in and said, I'm just going to throw a bunch of numbers in and then this workflow was actually wired up to apply that IP address, the workflow would fail because it would never be able to assign a 999-999-999-999 IP address. Any questions on, on that part? I know that, that we kind of threw three different concepts out at the same time, so I want to give a chance to answer anything. We have a question in the chat, but it's kind of a side topic. Um, you just imploded the internet with that 999 IP address, though, according to the peanut gallery. What was that? What about the 999 IP address? You caused the internet to implode. Pretty much. So. Pretty much. <laughs> what was the uh, the side the side question? Um, Advantages over Ansible. So, that. that is a side. <laughs> yes, yeah, so that was an aside. Um, if you uh, want to start that discussion, I guess take it, you know, go to Twitter and we can talk about it there. It's probably an entire new episode. Yeah, that, there, you know, the short of it is, is that Ansible is another tool in the automation toolkit, at least in, in my eyes. And Jad, obviously you have experience in this from some of the stuff you were working on before, before moving up. Um, Ansible is another tool in tool belt. We're, we're fans of Ansible. We play well with Ansible. There's cool things coming from an Ansible perspective and, and VRA. Um, but it's, it's just another tool in the, in the belt. You know, I don't see a lot of people provisioning mass environments entirely using Ansible. Yes, it can be done. Yes, some people do do it. Yes, they're probably the loudest people in the world because they're going to say, no, you're wrong, Cody. Everyone does it this way. Most people are using Ansible for, for point, point use cases to solve specific problems, like you should any tool. Uh, I like VRA because it tends to take all of these automation concepts and kind of weaves them all together into an entire management platform and an automation platform that can take kind of these individual components and make them into one centralized thing. Any thoughts, Jed? Yeah, very, very different beasts. I would say better dig together um, in, in VRA's current state right now. Um, yeah, not, uh, it, it would probably be, probably be a, a rabbit hole if we jump into that right now. But yeah, I just want to be very clear that it's not, that question isn't in the context of custom forms, at least it shouldn't be. No. Uh, it should be in the context of, of VRA, VRA and, and delivering services as a, Catalog-based services, um, yeah, and we can we can go and, and have that conversation elsewhere probably. So the final thing I'll touch on a little bit is just this concept of the data grid, and, and you know, being being very transparent, this is our this is our first run at introducing custom forms into into the Blueprint Designer. Uh, um, so there's always going to be something that doesn't really work the way you're hoping it does, and for and for me. The grid, um, the data grid is a really cool feature and it opens up some very interesting doors, but there are aspects of the data grid that aren't really fully fleshed out at this point, um, trying to get switch statements to work so that it just displays a specific list isn't really working the way I was hoping it would. Uh, I can show a very simple demo of returning values from a VRO workflow, but there's, there's definitely some what I would call gaps. Uh, I'll show right out of the gate 
one, we don't have a way to remove these right now. So people can add in additional values, which is fine, right, if you if you wanted to provide that concept. But if you wanted to use this to, for example, list out, um, a good example for me was if you deployed a SQL server and you wanted to list out all of the drives that are attached to that SQL server and what's in each one of those drives. Maybe you have one for logs, maybe you have one for XYZ, right? Um, being able to list, list those out just as kind of a, an update or sort of a, a view into how that server is configured or what version of software is on there. So somebody, if they want to deploy, you know, a LAMP stack, they can say these are all the versions of the individual components of the LAMP stack. It meets that use case, but somebody could easily come in and just be like, oh, now it's all gone, right? So the, the grid is, is something that's being worked on. There's active, um, what we call PRs internally to actually work on that and enhance that and make the data grid actually more functional and able to do a lot more with it. Uh, but it's definitely something that leaves a little bit to be desired right now. And I see we're rolling up on time, hence why I sprinted through that, that last object. Yep, and, and I'll, um, I'll refer back to the documentation. I, I noted that it's, it's pretty powerful this time around. I, we've been weak in the past. Um, but if you look at specifically um, the custom forms documentation, it's in the uh, VRA 7.4 configuration guide. Um, there are pages and pages of examples and walkthroughs that cover uh, validations and regecs and, and the basic inputs and, and requirements for custom forms. I mean, it's, it's pretty... Um, it's pretty comprehensive, so so certainly don't don't dismiss um, our our docs the way you may have in the past. There's it's very powerful uh, to get you up and running, um, and <clears throat> it's more than I ever expected actually on a new new capability. So take a look at that. Another questions come in. Uh, have you developed workflows to audit Microsoft licensing? That is absolutely a good use case. Uh, and what we can do is, uh, so we can, we can you know, this happens to be um, something that was discussed recently. First of all, we can do an external validation and pull a number and make sure that what you're requesting has a valid number of licenses available. So that's, that's one example. Um, so not really auditing, just giving real-time feedback. Um, from an auditing perspective, I could use good old governance and say, uh, in flight, be able to um, hit an inbox and say, hey, this is this user's requesting XYZ licenses. Do you approve and allow human intervention? Or I could, of course, hit an action or a workflow or VRO and say, um, you know, subtract one license from this pool of whatever licenses. and. Um, so we, I haven't myself, I haven't written one. I'm not sure about you, Cody, but but that is a very valid use case. Um, so sorry. I, I actually did uh, write a very similar one at former former company, um, and it, we essentially used we used uh, SQL, right? So we'd um, we had a different workflow that our one team would go in and fill out and inject values into a SQL database. So it was a workflow they'd fill out. They'd say, you know, this server. Uh, or this type of sort of like SQL as an example, SQL Enterprise, we have six licenses, right? And every time we provision one, it would drop that number down, and we had a field on the workflow that would go and check it. Uh, it wasn't used extensively. Uh, there was reasons. We ended up moving on to an ELA, so we were able to provision a lot more without having necessarily worries. So we got essentially SA for SQL servers. But uh, it's, it's definitely, there's a hundred ways to skin that cat. If you have a data source that has that stuff, it's very easy to pull that in and make make changes. All right, I'm checking Twitter here to see if anything has come up there. While we were talking through that, I was just populating out some of these components that we had talked about last week around you know doing the sizing dropdowns. So coming in here and then being able to bind these blueprint sizes to the, the CPU and memory. Another example of this, and, and Jad touched on it, and it's actually, this, this example is actually in the documentation that Jad was talking about, you know, my big complaint around the memory field. 
if I wanted to take this and actually drop out, I'll make this the last example before we cut since we're a little bit over now. If I want to change this to memory GB instead, I could have the value be a computed value. And we could do a multiplica multiplication of this field times the value. So came in here and did times 1024. Oh, it's because I did a text field instead of a number field. It's going to be upset. So integer. Go in and do a value. Cool. Compute a value, multiply that value, constant 1024. We could actually have this multiply times the memory MB field and have it um, actually return back a gigabyte to, to megabytes conversion. Actually, and, we would do it in reverse. And yeah. you could hide the memory field altogether, the, the out of the box memory field. Uh, and use the integer instead. So you could actually replace every required field with your own custom field. Um, if you want to, there we go. That's what I was going for. Yeah. So this, grab that integer field that I didn't change the name of. So now we have this one set from a visibility to no. We have the default values, build memory DB, save, finish. So if we went into the catalog, we would actually see that there. We could actually fill this in and put constraints around it, right? If I do that, it's going to blow up my lab entirely. But we could actually go in and um, put constraints around that. And actually, we could get, get crazy and do an actual external validation and look at our cluster and see how much memory we had left. And if this provisioning was going to send us over the top, reject the build, right? You don't have enough capacity to do and, this. this. And just to clarify, since, since you're, you're covering this, um, Cody, just to clarify, now that's a, a very good use case because people really hate the megabyte thing. Um, last week I showed how we can do a step. So we can do an up arrow and actually increment by 1024. So we can do oh, one, yeah. one gig. But if you were to do this, which is often the preferred, um, we're going to keep in mind that the, the memory field is a required field. So we could hide it and then calculate its results, which is passed into the request. But that memory field also has a min max that is pulled from the blueprint. That min max is not going to be honored by your custom integer field. So you have to create the constraints. True. Otherwise, the, the request is going to fail. And that applies to um, any time. It's, it's really easy to do. Just create uh, you know, a similar constraint. So if it's 8192 is your max memory in the blueprint, make your constraint uh, in in the new integer field um, to eight. So the most you can calculate is eight by 1024, which is 8192. Yeah, that, that's essentially what we've done here. Two, four, that populates the memory MB field. We still have the size one here, but we can use that size field to populate CPU and memory, right? Very easily by going in and doing memory values conditional value, we can add expressions around it. So set value to two if the size field, blueprint size equals small, and small. And we can go through and fill, I'm not gonna go through it because it'll just kill a lot of time, but we can go through and fill all of that out and have it actually populate those CPU memory fields. But taking this further, you know, you could have a larger build go out and do additional disks to a to a virtual machine, right? You could add, say, a large server had four disks. You could take this and start to get really creative and mix in XHAS workflows like maybe some Veeam backup stuff, or rubric, rubric backup stuff, or Cohesity, different things that you could bolt onto this and have it actually change the way that Blueprint executes based on conditional values and how those conditional values play with uh, actual workflows. So it gets really powerful and really deep 
really fast. And I'm not going to dig any deeper because we'll just keep rambling for the entire night. <laughs> I think we're good. There's a question, and I'm not sure if, so I'm, I'm just going to ask the question. So Graham is saying, can you incorporate a form within the form, say a simple form for the guest, a separate one for the app, then combine into like a master form? Yep, so that's that's what I went over yet last week um, and, and kind of recapped it today. So I had an XAS form, um, and that XAS form can be a child form. So I've, I've completed the XAS form, I do everything what I do in XAS, in the XAS form designer, and then in my canvas, I dragged and dropped that XAS form, I made it available in the canvas, I moved it into my blueprint canvas, and then when I edited the custom form that included all the attributes um, being pulled from uh, any artifact on that canvas, including the XAS form. So in that case, we have a form within a form. What you can't do, um, well, so if, you, if you're creating a um, a design and you're you're using the blueprint category to drag and drop completed blueprints onto the design um, you're going to end up with a master form that consolidates all the attributes into that master form so it it won't when you do it that way those nested blueprints it's not going to say hey well that one already has a custom form let me expose that to you it's a it because it's designed that way it's supposed to be a net new application when you're using like the Lego block approach in, in VRA. So so I kind of halfway answered, well, I think I answered your question, but it's it's halfway what you're wanting, right? X has forms, R child forms, or, or can be consolidated into a custom form, but blueprints, two blueprints consolidated into a single master blueprint is one consolidated form. And the way you'd break it up is by tabs. Uh, again, I, I did tabs last week, so I had, the user tab, or, or I'm sorry, I had individual tabs for individual tiers of Blueprint. You could absolutely do that, and that's probably how you'd solve what you're asking for. Yep, and he had to make the connection, and he was asking if subforms, if the subforms updated, will it automatically update the other ones? But I think you answered that with the tab uh, workflow, right? Yep, so you can do tabs and build relationships. Okay. Um, so I can say, if I hit a checkbox, um, by hitting that checkbox, I'm automatically exposing a new tab, and that new tab has its own entries, um, which is a whole bunch of other blueprint elements or custom elements. Very cool. Cody, Cody's walking through something right now. Just adding things for while you're talking about them so people have visual cues. You see, I was just playing with CSS, and I got the labels to work correctly, and then the background color, which gets a little hairy too. You know, because you're playing starting to play with CSS, you need to be aware of your colors and actually do correct font colors that contrast against backgrounds. Otherwise you can't see anything. You pick the ugliest colors. <laughs> do you want indigo? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so any any other questions out there? I think that is it. Honestly, I really want to thank you guys because you've been super nice, super patient, super uh, willing to both of you come for two weeks straight for something that you know is a pain point for a lot of people. And here it is. It will be a resource that you can be referenced forever. So I really thank you guys. Awesome. Thanks a lot, everybody. Um, we can take conversations to Twitter. And uh, otherwise, um, enjoy, have fun, download, upgrade. Uh, to 7.4 and start planning with it, provide your feedback, um, show some cool things and use cases, write about it, blog about it, et cetera. We'd love to see some more of that. And again, um, welcome, Cody, uh, to my old team. And uh, anybody who follows View Realize Automation, um, you know, Cody's going to be an awesome asset. So just wanted to, to reiterate that. That's very cool stuff happening. And uh, that's it. Yeah, and in the spirit of that, you know, as as the community wants to see more, I know that you know I'm I'm in the V Expert Slack so Jad. We see a lot of of conversation about problems people are having. If there's if there's V brown bags you want to see around around VRA, you know whether it's super basic, how to get started with multi tenancy, or 
how to get started with your your first blueprint. You know, we're, I'm always welcome. I'm always willing, not welcome. I hope I'm welcome. I'm willing to come back and do these presentations again whenever you guys want. Love the Vibrabi community. So. I'll take your word for it, and I'll start penciling you for a, from zero to useful in VRA. <laughs> All right. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Again, congratulations, Cody. Thank you, Jed, for everything you've done. And that will be the recording for tonight. All right. Thanks a lot, guys.